Growing in God's Word and learning how to take up our cross and follow Jesus. This is Crosswalk from Cross Culture Church in Raleigh, North Carolina. And even though a person said, well, I know I'm in a relationship with Christ, so if I commit a sin unto death, I'm still going to heaven. That may be true, but is that is that how you want to get to heaven? Is that how you want to enter someday? Have you ever heard someone say something like, I don't know why God doesn't strike them dead for that? Are there instances where God would actually strike a person dead for something they did? The answer may surprise you. There is accountability. I'm just saying that God takes this stuff seriously. Hello and welcome to Crosswalk. Today we finish up 1 John chapter 5, where Pastor Clay has been teaching us about the importance of our theology, what we believe about God, and how it affects our lives. Last week we looked at two of the victories that should be ours when we understand who Jesus Christ is and when we have made Him our Savior. Today we're looking at two more areas where victory is ours. As Pastor Clay is going to explain in just a moment, one of the ways we should experience victory is in the area of disobedience. We don't need the devil's help to sin. We're perfectly capable of jumping into sin ourselves. I mean, that's truth with the sin nature that we have. It is in that context that the Apostle John begins to talk about praying for those in sin, as long as they haven't committed a sin unto death. Just what is a sin unto death? Not a specific, oh, oh, you did that. Well, that's it, man. You're gone. See ya. It's not a specific sin. It is a sin of such a nature that God says, that's it. That's it. That's just one of the questions we're going to take on in today's message. So, thanks for joining us today. Now, here's Pastor Clay. I want to jump in this morning by uh, just reminding you of where we've been for the last, uh, really, three, or I don't know if it's third or fourth week in uh, 1 John chapter 5. I didn't intend for just that one chapter to take that long, but it just, it just happens sometimes. When there's a, a lot of uh, in the text uh, to look at, <clears throat> we have been making our way through First John 5. As we're making our way through this series, building on the basics, as we are building on these basics, the basic uh, from James, y'all remember what the basic from James was? I shouldn't have asked that question. I just... Faith, that's right. In James, we talked about the basic of faith. What does that look like? How, do, how, does, it, how does it transfer off of, off of pages and become an actual part of my life? Right? And, 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 and Peter, we made our way through First and Second Peter. And you remember what the basic was we built on there? I know I'm pushing it. Hope. Hope. We built on the basic of hope. What is the hope that we have? And how do we, again, live in that hope? And then, and then and so lately we've been building on the basic of what? Love, just making our way through First John, through the chapters of First John, and Second John and Third John will, will go uh, fairly qu- r- real quickly, actually, and that finishing up that basic of love. And then we got one more basic after that, and it's again should probably just be a one weeker from the book of Jude, and that is the basic of judgment. That there, that there's a basic understanding of your theology that judgment is a part of God's plan, and what that's going to look like for believers, and what's that going to look like for for unbelievers, and and uh, so judgment and the idea of being ready. But today, we're looking at 1 John chapter 5. If you have a copy of God's Word, you can open to that chapter. And here's what we've looked at so far from 1 John chapter 5. Here's the first idea that we started with. Y'all are tired of hearing me say it probably because I've repeated it over and over and over again. You could probably say it to me without it even being up on the screen. But there it is. Your theology shapes your reality. I will say it one more time. No, it's probably not the last time. But what you believe about God will shape what you believe about everything else. It really will. If you'll stop and think about that, you uh, students, you teenagers, those of you that are, are probably just a few years away from going off, whether it's to college or to the military or into the workforce or whatever, you, you remember as you put this down, you remember that, that, that Pastor Clay stood up there and said over and over and over again that what you believe about God will shape and influence what you believe about everything else in your life. The second idea from 1 John 5 about theology that we looked at was that your theology then is revealed in your priority. In other words, uh, if this is real to me, what I believe, if, if, uh, if this is really what I think and it, it really is shaping uh, who I am, then it will, it will be revealed in what are the priorities of my life and what shapes my life and what becomes important to my life. I think I even put a little ditty up there. If it's real to us, it will be revealed through us. It will just 
It will come out. It becomes the priority of my life. And everything I do in my life, whether it's work or, or school or my relationships with my family or uh, my, whatever it might be, ultimately will, will come off of this central idea that I believe that Jesus Christ is God in the flesh, that he came and he died for my sins, that he's become my savior and that, and that he's coming back for me someday. That proper theology will shape uh, the priorities of your life. And then, third, we started last week looking at the third idea, and that is that your theology should result in, say it, victory. That's just a good good word to say. But I don't even think you can say it the way y'all do. Y'all said like victory. That's not even legal. Come on, say it. Victory. Victory. Your theology should result in victory in your life. In my life, it really should. And we looked at two of the areas where that victory should come based on what John says in 1 John chapter 5 last week. The first one, if you were here, I hope that you remember it, but we said that as a result of a proper understanding of who God is and, and relationship with him, that you and I have victory over death. Yeah, death. Well, how, how did Apostle Paul put it? Death, where's your sting? Right? I mentioned the fact that what we need to remember about victory over death is that it, it is exclusive, but it's not elusive. In other words, it is exclusive in the sense that it is only through Christ. It's through Christ and it's through Christ alone. That's what God says, what Jesus said. That's what Jesus proved, that it is exclusive. There's only one way to access the Father, and that is through His Son, Jesus Christ. It is exclusive. I'm sorry, you, you, can't, you, you, you can't get there through Buddha. You can't get there through Muhammad. You can't get there through Krishna. You can't get there through your own good works. You can't get there any way other than through Jesus Christ. But it's not elusive. As I said last week, uh, in, from, from God, as far as God is concerned, salvation that he offers to us, it's not a moving target like it is in, in what separates Christianity from every other religion in the world where you uh, do good works or enough good works or don't do enough bad or balance those scales or, or whatever else. No, God says, here it is. It's through my son, Jesus Christ, uh, and, and you can have it. You have to place your faith in him as you repent of your sins, commit your life to him. There, that's it. It's not elusive. It's not hard to grasp. It's not hard, hard to, to receive. And it gives us victory over death. And the other uh, truth that I mentioned about our victory over death is that it is now and then. It is now and then. Whatever heaven will be like, all the greatness of heaven, the new heaven, the new earth, and whatever all that will be like, it will be fantastic. I, 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 know, I just know it will be. And it will be this place where there'll be no more sorrow or death or pain or suffering or cancer or, or gossip or hurt feelings or betrayal or abandonment. None, all that stuff that we think of as the bad stuff of life, it's all gone. It's all gone in heaven. It'll be, it'll be wonderful then. And I realized, the, as I said last week, the fulfillment, the ultimate fulfillment of that is then when we step into eternity. But it is also now. Jesus, uh, John said, you have present tense, continuous tense verb. You have eternal life. In other words, it's not something that I have to wait until I die to begin to experience in my life. Oh, why? Why? Why would I do that? Why would I wait until heaven to experience some of the benefits of having eternal life if I don't have to? That would be like, that would be like going down to the Krispy Kreme factory. It'd be worse, actually. But like going down to the Krispy Kreme factory down there on the corner of North Person Street and, uh, and Peace Street. Yeah, y'all ever been down there? To the, I mean, the factory, actually rolling, them babies are rolling off. It'd be like going down there, Krispy Kreme factory, watching them piping hot donuts rolling off there. Just going through that, that icing bath. Have y'all seen that? That icing bath rolling off in there. It'd be like watching them go through there, getting you a dozen and, and looking at them things. Man, I'm so hungry. And these look fantastic and they smell even better. But I, I think I'll wait till next week to eat one. Are you insane? No, no, nobody would do that. Are you, are you hungry for the benefits of having eternal life? Of having his peace and purpose and power? Of having his contentment? I haven't even got to this week yet. I'm still on last week. But it just, I get so fired up about this stuff. Don't you hunger for that in your life? It, it, it's, it's then, yes, someday. But it's also now. 
If you're not experiencing God's eternal life in your life right now, then why not? Okay, all right. <laughs> Here we go. Uh, it, uh, the first two weeks I read all, uh, 1 through 21, read the entire chapter of the first two weeks. Last week I read uh, those uh, verses that just covered up through verse 15, I think, of uh, that first part of victory. Now let's jump into the second part, or part two, if you will, of uh, the victory that we have. Your theology should result in victory, part two. And here it is. Uh, here's, here's the first one, area where it should. Uh, victory over disobedience. Oh, I forgot one, didn't I? Victory over death and victory over doubt. Sorry, I forgot that. That was last week also, wasn't it? Do y'all remember victory over doubt? John goes into prayer and he says, listen, you don't even have to doubt. You don't have to worry. If, if, if you're living according to God's will in your life and what you're asking is according to God's will in your life, you don't even have to doubt. There's, there's no way in the world God is not going to respond and answer that prayer. If, if what you're asking is according to his will, I understand there's some mystery there. We talked a good bit about that. If you weren't here, you might want to go back and listen to that message. By the way, even if you, weren't, even if you were here, you might want to go back and listen to it anyway because maybe you slept through part of it and possibly because just occasionally it's good to go back and, and hear a message again and be encouraged by it, right? You can just... Sometimes he's like, wow, I, didn't, I missed that last week. It's like going to, going to a movie. Y'all, y'all ever gone to a movie, and then you go back, and you've really enjoyed it, but you go back a second time, and you say, wow, I, I totally missed that the first time. Does that ever happen to y'all? It could be. I'm not, 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 com- I'm not comparing myself to, you know, some of the great cinematic uh, things of all time, but I'm just saying it could be that you might miss something, and you're like, wow, I didn't catch that last time. So, uh, victory over death, victory over doubt. Here's the new one this morning, victory over disobedience. And we're going to read verses 16 through 18. Y'all ready? Because that was a big lead up to it. <laughs> if anyone sees his brother committing a sin not leading to death, he shall ask and God will for him give life to those who commit sin not leading to death. There is a sin leading to death. I do not say that he should make request for this. All unrighteousness is sin. And there is a sin not leading to death. We know that no one who is born of God sins. And we talked about that and what that means and what it doesn't mean. But he, who was, but he who was born of God keeps him and the evil one does not touch him. Sin not unto death, sin unto death. That's a lot, right? Listen, here, here's one of the things that we, that we notice when we get into this part of the text. We begin to read something like that. It's... Uh, it's easy for our focus to immediately get drawn to this, this sin unto death. Well, the sin unto death, sin unto death. What is sin unto death? It's easy to get uh, focused on that and miss uh, the fact that in its context, John is still talking about uh, prayer. He's still talking about the power of prayer and how prayer can be answered and how we, we don't have to doubt that, uh, that God is going to answer prayer. And he begins to give an example of how that happens. And it is in the area of disobedience and a person who is, uh, who is in disobedience. And John begins to talk about uh, a person who begins, who has allowed sin or a sin practice to come into their life. And John says, when we, when we know that is a fact, hey, listen to me, when we know it for truth, not when we, I, I, I heard, did you hear about, no, but, but someone that, that's, a, that's a, a friend, a part of the body, whatever it is, and, and we know that it's truth, that some, they've allowed some sin practice to come into their life. What, what should we do? We should pray for them. We should pray. That's what John says. You, you ought to be praying for them. All through John's letter, right? From chapter 1 on, he's been talking about this love that we ought to have for each other. Right? Right? Love, 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 love. We've heard it so much, y'all are sick of it. But he's talked about how, how we ought to love each other, even if we don't have that good a relationship, don't know each other that well, because it's, it's, not, it's not the way the world defines. It's not based on how well we know a person or what we like about a person or any of that kind of stuff. It's based on God's love for us, and so we should love. And we spent a significant amount of time defining that God kind of love and that it's sacrificial and that it focuses on the other person and not on you. And so John comes back to this idea. He says, man, you, you, you got to love these people. You want to love these people. And if you want to love for, if you love them, then what you have to do is pray for them. Right? So he says, if you care about people, pray for them. So when we hear about something going on in a person's life, the first thing we ought to do is, is not 
sit down and watch and see what happens or, or lay down and act like nothing's wrong. No, John says you ought to fall down on your knees, on your face and pray, intercede for that person. Well, what do we, what do we pray? Well, John says a good place to start is pray that God don't strike him dead. <laughs> That's a good, pretty good place to start. We'll get to what is a, we'll, we'll get to what is a, a sin unto death and, and what is not. But as I'll explain, hopefully, in a few moments, that, that there are cases perhaps where we may not be aware that a person has sinned a sin unto death. There must be, but there may be cases where we may not be aware of it. But that doesn't mean we should not be praying for them if we know a person has allowed something to come into their life that God would not want in their life. We should be praying for them. It's just, uh, I was just thinking as I was walking through this text and I was working on this message, and I think, okay, well, what's the practical way that they can pray? So you, you, could, you could look at doing this. You can do what, what I call uh, open-closed prayers. Here's, here's just some ideas, things you can do. You can start with this. You can, you can pray that they will be open to the Spirit's conviction, right? Because listen, all the... You, you, can, you can get in people's face and there's, there's a place for that sometimes. You, you got a good enough relationship with them and you know something's wrong in their life and you get in their face. Listen, I love you and so I love you enough to tell you what you're doing is wrong. There's a place for that. But in the end, ultimately, it's the Spirit of God that has to change a person's heart, their life. And so pray that they will be open to the Spirit's conviction. Have you ever talked to somebody or maybe you've been at this place in your life? I have been where I just wasn't open to the Spirit's conviction. I'll just... Thank you very much. Pray that, that, that that's a part of your prayer. Pray that they'll be open to Spirit's conviction. Second, pray that, they, that ungodly influences will close. I've said this many times. Um, we don't need the devil's help to sin. We're perfectly capable of jumping into sin ourselves. I mean, that's truth with the sin nature that we have and just all that kind of stuff. But more times than not, there is some type of ungodly influence that's brought into my life, your child's life, a friend's life. There can be ungodly influences that, that affect or cause us to make decisions that lead us into sin. Do you understand? You, you can pray that those ungodly influences will be closed. And, and listen, it, it could be a, a, a show that we're watching that, that just... I just be honest with you, it's got some ungodly things that, that, that can, could influence us. It could be a, a person that, you know, it's a friend of yours or a confidant or somebody sharing with you. And, but it may be an ungodly influence. It's okay for you, if you love that person, to pray, God, take out those ungodly influences in their life. And you may know specifically what it is, you may not, but you can still pray that way. Third, you can pray that they will open their heart and repent. Pray that they will open their heart and repent because that's what it takes to turn around, to repent, to turn around and to go in a new direction. I'm changing. I've been doing this. I've been, this practice has been going on in my life. God's conviction comes to my life. I know this is not right. I want to honor God. I will turn around. I will repent. And now I'll go in a new direction. I'll go in the direction God wants me to go in my life. You can pray that for them, that they'll be open, uh, their heart will be open and that they will repent. And then... Fourth, you can pray that this chapter of their life will close. Hey, listen, there's not a person in this room or listening to this message that has not been in sin in their life. Not a person. If you look back at your life and you think of times where, where sin entered your life or, or you allowed sin to come in or you got into some sinful practice... And the Spirit of God worked in your life and brought you a place of repentance and you turned and you walked away from that. Aren't you glad that God closed that chapter of your life? I am. I'm glad that God closes chapters of our lives when we return, return to Him, when we turn in repentance and return back to Him. Pray, God, close that chapter of their life. God, slam the door. Cause them to walk away from it. God, bring them back to you. If you love them, that's what you do. You, you can pray for them, Right? Pray that disobedience will be defeated, that they'll have victory in their life. All right. You're all, right, chomping at the bit. Yeah, 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 yeah. But what is this sin unto death thing? Right? Let's get to it. What is a, a sin unto death? What is a sin leading to or literally towards death? How do I, how, how do I know if a person is committing? How do I know if I'm committing a sin leading to death. A couple things I want to say as we start this uh, that you need to understand. Uh, one of them is, is that clearly 
since John gives absolutely zero explanation as to what it is. It must be that the sin unto death was clearly understood. Uh, the meaning was obvious to the original recipients of the letter. They, they must have automatically known what John was writing about because he gives absolutely no indication, does he, of what, what this sin unto death is. So, it, it must... And, and it, it may also tell us, by the way, that it's just as obvious still today, but we have talked about it and discussed it and debated it so much that, that it's, it's all confusing. It may be just as obvious today as it was then. Uh, the second uh, idea to, to bring out is that John must be talking about physical death and not spiritual death. He has to be talking about physical death and not spiritual death. Why? Because I believe the Bible is very clear that a person who has, uh, who has eternal life, remember present continuous tense, a person who has been adopted into the family of God, a person who has been born again, a person who has received this grace gift from God, cannot ever lose that grace gift. They cannot, they cannot lose the salvation that God has given to them. It is eternal life. Think about it. If, they, if you could lose it, then it was never really eternal to begin with, was it? Whoever believes in him shall have semi-eternal life. No, that's not what it says. So, uh, so this, this, by the way, the reason that you and I cannot lose this grace gift is because it was never ours to begin with. It was never ours to work for or earn or deserve or, or somehow take credit for. It was a grace gift. It is a grace gift given to all those who by faith come into a relationship with Jesus Christ. It has nothing to do with how good you are or bad you are. It has to do with what Christ did on the cross. And when we recognize that, we, we recognize our own sin, we confess our sin, we turn from that sin, commit our life to Jesus Christ, we enter into a relationship with him that God produced, and so God holds. Listen, if, if, if I could earn my salvation, then it would make sense that I could lose it, wouldn't it? If I, if I, did, if I did enough bad that outweighed the good, or if I did a bad enough bad, do you know what I'm saying? Then it would make sense that I might could lose it. But it's never based on that to begin with. It's based on what God did for us. And so, so John must be talking about fi literal physical death and not spiritual death. Okay? All right. Now, as we get into this, uh, how, do we, how do we determine what is a sin unto death? I'm taking a little time to chew on this this morning because I just, I just think you just, you just have to. You can't just fly through it. And the best way, uh, some of you know this, is, or you heard it before, the best way to interpret Scripture always is to interpret it with other Scripture, right? That's, that's how you get to the meaning of a text and, and hold on to the true meaning of a text. So what I want to do is show you three examples from Scripture where uh, a person or persons committed a sin unto or a sin toward death. We're going to look at each one of them, okay? Real quickly, take a little bit of time to do this, but, uh, but we're, we're answering this question, what is a sin unto death? Because you do want to know that, right? I mean, you, you really don't want to, I mean, probably don't want to commit a sin unto death. Okay, the first example is one that people don't often think of, but it is Moses and Aaron. Moses and his brother Aaron. Moses and Aaron committed a sin unto or towards death. The story is found in Numbers chapter 20. Uh, let me just give you the gist of it. Uh, the Israelites are out in the wilderness, wandering around because of their disobedience to God. They didn't go into the promised land when God told them to. And so God said, okay, let's go on back out into the wilderness. And they wander, they're wandering out. They're going to wander, wander around out there for about 40 years. Are you all familiar with that story? All right, so they're, go, they're back out into the wilderness. And they're wandering around and they come to this place called Meribah. And when they get there, there's no water there. No water. And listen, I've never been to the, I've never been there, but I've seen pictures. I've seen it's it's hot, barren, deserted. I mean, and and there's a lot of people, and they're and and they're hot, and they've traveled, and they're thirsty, and and if you've ever been like super thirsty, but it's just it just consumes you, right? You just can't. I'm oh my gosh, I can't get anything. I can't get I can't get it off my head. I'm just so thirsty, and so and so in short order, in short order, they are working themselves into a serious crisis. They're, they're working themselves into crisis mode. Uh, adversity will tend to do that in your life. Hey, can I just stop right here for just a second? Sidebar and say something about adversity in our lives. Here's the way I, I put it. You may want to write this down. Adversity is a soil that grows bitterness or betterness equally well. In other words, 
God uh, can and will and desires to take uh, adversity in our life and to work it in our life in such a way that, that we learn a greater degree of trust, a greater degree of, of uh, faith, uh, that we come out on the other side of it better, stronger, uh, healthier in our walk with God as a result of the adversity that we went through. Have any of y'all ever experienced? Sure you have, right? You've experienced adversity and you could look back at it and say, man, I, I, well, I, I didn't like that. It wasn't comfortable at all, but I can see how God worked and, and, and I'm better today as a result of that. God will do that. But if you, if you hold back, if you are angry, if you are uh, discontent, if you lack faith, if you are ungrateful, if you, oh, this, oh, this, this, oh, this is going on, this is terrible, I hate this. If you, I'm telling, I, listen to me, I'm just telling you, it's just my observation from my own life and from a number of years of, of pastoring people, I'm just telling you, the, a root of bitterness is ready to spring up in your life faster than Kim Kardashian is ready for a selfie. I'm telling you. I'm telling you, it's right there and it's ready to jump on you. So you better decide, what is adversity going to do in my life? So we've discussed this a million times, y'all know this. There is adversity, right? Nobody, nobody escapes it. Nobody gets $200 in passes, go every time around the board. You're going to have adversity in your life. So here they are, they're out there in the wilderness. And... They're like, oh my God, why did you ever even take us out of Egypt? Yeah, just because you've been in slavery for 400 years. Why did you ever take us out of Egypt? And it's better off back there. And now you've led us out into this place, Moses and Aaron. What are you doing? And now we'll get to this place. There's no food, there's no water, there's no shade, there's nothing out here. Why, uh? Pretty sure that's how it sounded. Cindy's like, that sounds like you when dinner's not ready. Right, so, so, so they're complaining. So Moses and Aaron go running to the, to the door of the tabernacle, and they fall down on their faces, and they say, God, God, what do you want us to do with these people? Here's what God says. Numbers chapter 20, verse 8. Take the rod. He's talking about the rod that, that Moses turned into a serpent, you know, that consumed all the other Egyptian serpents, that, that touched the river Nile and turned it into blood. The, the rod, right? It was Aaron's rod, but Moses would use it. Take the rod. And you and your brother Aaron, assemble the congregation, speak to the rock before their eyes, speak to the rock before their eyes, that it may yield its water. You shall thus bring forth water for them out of the rock, and let the congregation and their beasts drink. Pretty straightforward. So, watch what Moses and Aaron do in uh, verses uh, uh, 9 through 11. So Moses took the rod from before the Lord, just as he had commanded him. So far, so good. And Moses and Aaron gathered the assembly before the rock, So far, so good. And he said to them, listen now, you rebels. Shall we bring forth water for you out of this rock? And then Moses lifted up his hand and struck the rock twice with his rod. And water came forth abundantly. And the congregations and their beasts drank. Well, and they almost got it. I mean, they kind of did what God said. I mean, they did take the rod and they, and, they, and they did gather the assembly. And yeah, maybe it wasn't exactly as God said, but, but they did bring forth water. And so in the end, it, it's about results, right? And so the, the people got to drink and the, their, their life, they were going to live. And so isn't the end, isn't that, what, isn't that what it's really all about? Listen, I'll just say it. We are way too flippant with the holiness of God. We, and I'm not talking about the way we dress. I'm talking about the way we live our lives, the way we act, the way we follow in obedience to God. We're way too flippant with it. Because watch what God says to Moses and Aaron uh, in verses 12 and following. But the Lord said to Moses and Aaron, because you have not believed me, to treat me as holy in the sight of the sons of Israel, therefore you shall not bring this assembly into the land which I have given them, and those were the waters of Meribah because the sons of Israel contended with the Lord and he proved himself holy among them. Wow. That's tough, right? As a matter of fact, I don't remember who I was talking to recently, but we're talking about this very story, this very idea. And I, and I can remember, and I said who I was talking to, but I said, you know, when you read that story, it sounds like, man, God's kind of tough. That's kind of tough on, on Moses and, and Aaron. You know, as a matter of fact, I'm, I'm probably sure, pretty sure Aaron's thinking, Me? What did I do? He had the rod. Tough, right? I, it seems all those years of faithful service and going down there and bringing the Israelites out of captivity in Egypt and all of those miracles that he performed and leading them around like he did, all of that seemingly wiped out in, an, in just one moment of anger. And that's what it was. Y'all ever had a moment of anger? <laughs> 
In one moment of anger, all of that good that he's seemingly done, it's all gone. And now he doesn't get to go into the promised land. He's going to die right there in the wilderness. Seems kind of harsh. A couple things to remember. One, okay, the promised land is not heaven. All right? Keep that in mind. The promised land is not heaven. It's not an analogy for us for heaven. It was not heaven. The promised land was a wonderful place, a land flowing with milk and honey, and Israel was going to enjoy a lot of great stuff if they followed God. But there were still giants in the promised land that were going to have to be defeated. There won't be giants in heaven to defeat. So the fact that Moses and Aaron disobeyed God in this critical moment of the ministry uh, doesn't mean that they didn't go to heaven. They did. You, You will meet them someday. That's kind of cool. So, it's not not the same thing as heaven. Yeah, they messed up, but it didn't mean that that they lost their salvation. Second, and and perhaps maybe for us even more important, is this uh, truth. The greater the responsibility, the greater the accountability. The greater the responsibility. Have Moses and Aaron got responsibility? Yeah, buddy. Some estimate as many as two million people wandering around out there. The greater the responsibility, the greater the accountability. So if you're sitting there thinking, yeah, that's why I'm never going into ministry. I'm, I'm never going to do anything like that. There's, there's some truth in that. Can I tell you? There, pastors, elders, teachers, they will give an account for uh, how we've shepherded the flock or what we've taught. And all. There's some truth in that. But listen, do you have access to the Word of God? And I just remind you, do you have access to the Word of God in your house? Do you have the opportunity to study and to know the Word of God? There is accountability. Do you have people around you at school or neighbors or friends or, or whatever that do not have a relationship with Jesus Christ? Have you ever uh, shared your testimony with them? Have you ever invited them over for a meal to sit down to get to know them better? Have you ever invited them to a church where they can come and, and, and w- see what authentic worship looks like and hear uh, what this God, who this God is and how they can have a relationship with Him? Have you ever... Uh, there is accountability. I, I'm just saying... That God takes this stuff seriously. Okay, so, now it didn't happen, you know, right away. They didn't, they didn't drop dead on the spot. But Aaron died first, and then Moses died just before the people went in. It was a sin unto death. Second example is uh, Ananias and Sapphira. The story is found in Acts chapter 5, and I want to read a little bit of it to you. Uh, this, is, this is an interesting one. Now, man, this, remember, Acts 5, we're talking about this is the really early days of the church. Jesus has been gone back to heaven not very long. The church is getting started and up and running, and people are coming to a relationship with Jesus Christ. Now, a man named Ananias, together with Sapphira, his wife, sold a piece of property. He kept back for himself part of the proceeds. With his wife's knowledge, he brought only part of it and placed it at the apostles' feet. But Peter said, Ananias... Why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and keep back for yourself part of the proceeds from the sale of the land? Now listen to what he says. Before it was sold, did it not belong to you? And when it was sold, was the money not at your disposal? Have you thought up this deed in your heart? Have you not lied? You you have not lied to people, but to God. When Ananias heard these words, he collapsed and died. And great fear gripped all who heard about it. So the young man came, wrapped him up, carried him out, and buried him. All together now. Wow. And all who heard about it were gripped with fear. Let me tell you who didn't hear about it. Sapphira. So about three hours later, Sapphira comes in, and I'm just paraphrasing, Sapphira comes in, and Peter says, hey, uh, Sapphira, did, uh, did y'all sell the land for X amount of money? Yep, that is exactly how much we sell, sold the, the land for. Wrong, basically, wrong answer. She falls over dead. It's, it kind of, I mean, it's, I know it's serious, somebody died, but it's kind of comical when the, the, the guys that carried out Ananias, about time, they finally get done burying him, they come back in, there's another one. They got to carry another one out and bury him. And by the way, the text says again, and great fear gripped the church, right? So listen, it's clear. It wasn't, it wasn't the holding back of the money. That's what somebody's thinking right now. Well, geez, God, at least they gave some of the money to the church. At least they gave them as their land and they sold, at least they gave some of the money to the church, right? Somebody's thinking that right now. 
It wasn't the keeping of the money. That wasn't it. That wasn't the deal. That was, that was a common practice. That was going on back then. There were great needs. People, as they were coming to a relationship with Christ, they were getting, literally women, uh, particularly women, were being literally thrown out on the streets as they came into a relationship with Jesus Christ. Their Jewish husbands were throwing them out. And so you had this, what apparently was a general practice going on. Acts chapter 2, it says this. Uh, and on all those who had believed were together and had all things in common and they began selling their property and possessions and were sharing them with all as anyone might have need. It, it, was a, it, was, it, was a, it was a mess. It was a lot of stuff happening. People were getting thrown out and all this kind of stuff. And so there was this need and the people out of love. Listen, there's no indication that the text, that, I mean, there's no indication from Scripture that God told them to sell all their property to do this. Out of love, they decided to do this to meet the needs of the brothers and sisters in Christ. Listen to me. Our economic structure and our needs may not be the same today in the church, as at least in this part of the world, as they were back then, but the principle has not changed. If there is a need in your life, I'd better be willing to meet that need. Now, I'm not, I'm not talking about paying your cable bill. If you have nowhere to sleep tonight, particularly as a result of no fault of your own, I should bring you into my home or pay to our home or to pay to put you someplace until you can get on your... I should do that. That's what the body should do. If you're going to go hungry today, you're not going to eat today, the person beside you or behind you or around you, that person should step up and say, I'll take you to my house for a meal or here, here's money to get whatever you need. That, that principle hasn't changed, you understand? That's still the body of Christ. It's still when there's needs, we've got to meet those needs, whether they're financial or, or, or physical or emotional or, or whatever they need. That, that's, that's what we ought to do. Their sin was, was basically acting like they had sold it for X amount and getting credit for it. They're going to essentially lying to God by saying, yeah, here's, here's what we sold it for. Here, and here, we gave all the money. It, it, it's a pride issue. It makes them look bigger. Oh, that, look at the sacrifice that Ananias and Sapphira gave. They, they passed uh, Tom and Jerry. I, I don't, they, 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 did, they did better. You understand what I'm saying? Struck them dead on the spot. It was a sin unto death. One more real quick. The church in Corinth. Third example, all right? I'm going I'm to I'm bring this all together in just a minute. The church at Corinth. Maybe you remember the story. It's found in, in uh, uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 11. The Apostle Paul is giving instructions to the church about the Lord's Supper and about how to take the Lord's Supper. We looked at a, few, a couple of those passages last week when we participated in the Lord's Supper here, right? You remember? Here's how Paul finishes up that letter. This part doesn't get read a lot. We read the other parts at the Lord's Supper. This part doesn't often get read. Maybe we should read this more often. Uh, So anyone who eats this bread or drinks this cup of the Lord unworthily is guilty of sinning against the body and blood of the Lord. And that is why you should examine yourself before eating the bread and drinking the cup. He's saying, look at your life. Where where are you in your life? Are are you walking close to God? Have you let something come into your life? Examine your life. That's what you ought to do. That's why you examine yourself before eating the bread and drinking the cup. For if you eat the bread or drink the cup without honoring God, the body of Christ, you are eating and drinking God's judgment upon yourself. That is why many of you are weak and sick, and some have even, say it, died. But if we would examine ourselves, we would not be judged by God in this way. Yet when we are judged by the Lord, we are being disciplined so that we will not be condemned along with the world. So, my dear brothers and sisters, when you gather for the Lord's Supper, wait for each other. If you're really hungry, eat at home so you won't bring judgment upon yourselves when you meet together. I'll give you instructions about the other matters when I arrive. The, the, the Corinthian church was a hot mess. I mean, it really was. It was, it was a very carnally-minded church they had all kinds of problems there and one of them had to do with the lord's supper and the fact that they were they were treating it casually flippantly it was an opportunity they weren't using it as an opportunity to examine their lives i'm telling you this holiness of god thing the 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 the, the sacrifice of christ was way too important to be to be treated in a flippant or casual way but they were they were just and 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 they were even taking the and you got to understand contextually the Lord's Supper, when a church practice, it usually came after a, what they call a love feast. They would share a meal together, and, they, and then they would just take the elements and do, do the Lord's Supper. Take some bread, take some fruit of the vine, and, and have the Lord's Supper. That's how Jesus instituted it the first time. And so they're, they're just doing it casually, or they're, they're literally doing it just to, because they're hungry. They're going to fill up. 
And what does he say? What is, what, John, Paul says, that's why some of you are weak, and some of you are sick, and some of you have flat out died. It's confession time. I have sometimes, in a moment of weakness, thought, Lord, if you'd, if you'd do that a time or two on that whole tithing thing, I'm just, you might see receipts, God, I'm just saying, I'm just saying. But, but you understand, it's, it's they had, and, he, and, and they're, they're, di- they're dead, they're dying. It, we don't, the time, Paul's not clearing them, how quickly it happened. Did, did they get sick and die before they left the table? Was it a few days? The implication is that it, it just began to happen. But the truth is, but here's the thing, it was a sin unto death. Are you with me? You hear me? It's a sin unto death. All right, so here's what I think we can conclude from, from those three examples. Because they're not, they're not the same, right? I mean, what, what Moses and Aaron did, that wasn't exactly what Ananias and Sapphira did. What Ananias and Sapphira did wasn't the same as Corinth and, and vice versa. So, so it's not the same. So I, I think what we're saying is that a sin unto death, here, here's, what, here's what it looks like. A sin unto death is not a specific sin, but a horrific sin. Not a specific, oh, oh, you did that. Well, that's it, man. You gone. See ya. <laughs> it's not a specific sin. It is a horrific sin. In other words, it is a sin of such a nature... That God says, that's it. That's it. I'm not, because right, I mean, if you go back and read the story in Numbers 20, you know, they kind of tried to plead their case and, and God said, uh-uh, don't speak to me anymore about this. So, not necessarily, a specific, oh, don't do, it, it's a sin of such a nature that, that God moves and strikes a person dead as a result of it. Here's, here, here's the common denominators that they have, real quickly, here's the common denominators. Number one, it's dishonoring to God. In every instance, we looked at those three instances, in every instance, God was dishonored in some way, right? Moses and Aaron dishonored God by, by disobeying his word. What did he say? Go up and speak to the rock. By the way, you go back and read the story. God had already brought them water another time, and he had Moses strike the rock once. That had happened earlier. Now, a second time, they're out of water at another place, and, and God does it in a different way. Because I believe, because God wants to show them it's not about the rod, it's not about Moses or Aaron, it's about me. It's about me, God. It's about what I can do for you if you'll put your trust in me. So this time he says, go and speak to the rock. Hey, rock, why don't y'all give them some water? But they don't. In, 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 in their anger, said, y'all, you, you rebellious people, shall we give you water? Whack, whack. It was dishonoring to God. Ananias and Sapphira dishonored God. Not because they kept part of the proceeds from the sale of their own land, land that God had given to them, but it was their land, but because they lied about it. And and they were trying to take credit for what really was God's work and what God had done. They dishonored God. The church in Corinth was dishonoring God by treating the Lord's Supper in a casual, flippant way. A chance to fill their stomachs. I've said this many times, y'all have heard me say it, that when the church gathers Every Sunday, but when the church gathers to participate in the Lord's Supper, the table, it, it should be a high and holy moment in the life of a church. And it should not be treated casually, flippantly, oh yeah, okay, okay, break some bread, go drink. No, I, I ought to be examining my life, I ought to be looking at where I am, I ought to be saying, God, is, what, is, what is in my life that you would not be pleased with? God, I'm about to, to partake of elements that represent your son's body broken, his blood shed. God, don't let me do that in a casual Way. Don't only do that in a way with sin is in my life and I'm not repentant of it. They, they, they dishonored God. Second common denominator, destructive to God's people. This is, what, this is what makes the sin so horrific. It dishonors God and it's destructive to God's people. In each of those three instances, the sin took place in the presence of or directly impacted the people of God in some way. With Moses and Aaron, it was the nation of Israel. With uh, Ananias and Sapphira and the church in Corinth, it was the body. It was the church. And what they were doing was destructive to the body of Christ because they were doing something or d- destructive to the, to the people of God because what they were doing was in opposition to what God wanted them to do. And so, essentially, they were, they were, among other things, setting an incredibly bad example to the rest of the body by saying, ah, God, I know God says this or that or whatever, but, you know, you can just do it. And it won't, it won't really matter. Why? Because we're the people of God. Right? That's what Israel said. That's what the church can say. We're the people of God. And God was sending a clear message. Are you listening? Now, listen, are you listening? God was sending a clear message to the people of Israel to the church in the first century and to the church in the 21st century. 
Being a part of the body of Christ, being a part of the family of God, does not make you less responsible. It makes you more responsible to God. You may not be accountable for your sins if you've entered a relationship with Christ. They've been paid for. But you are accountable. You're responsible for your life and your conduct before God. So it was destructive to God's people. And then the third common denominator it is the, ultimately, it's in the discretion of God. Because, you know, when I was looking at those three examples, I was thinking, and maybe some of you have even been thinking this, I've been looking at those three examples. Maybe you're thinking, wow, golly gee, Batman. I, I've, I've done some things at times that uh, I'm pretty sure were dishonoring to God. I, I've done some things before that, that, that could be hurtful to, to part of the body of Christ, maybe my own family or, or the church uh, or, or what I've done with this or that, and God didn't strike me dead. Why not? I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. But as the old saying goes, some of y'all never heard this, so it's a brand new saying for you. Don't look a gift horse in the mouth. That's all I'm to, if, if, I'm just saying in the end, somewhere in there, it, it, God knows the heart. God knows the, the, the spirit of a person, their willingness to repent, the recognition of why they do what they do and don't do. And in the end, this, this discipline of this sin unto death is at the discretion of God. Ultimately, God decides who has reached a point and gotten and God. No. So here's the bottom line. You, you and I don't, we don't want to go there. And even though a person said, well, I, I know I'm in a relationship with Christ, so if I commit a sin unto death, I, I'm still going to heaven. That may be true, but is that, is that how you want to get to heaven? Is that how you want to enter someday? You want, I don't know if it's how, I'm not sure if this is how it's going to be, but if you're going in beside some other guy and, and he, he says, yeah, I, I, was, uh, I, was living, I was living for Christ in uh, Iraq and I was, I was killed by a bunch of, uh, Muslims, terrorists. How do you get here? Uh, well, I, you know what I'm saying. God's serious about his about his holiness and, and walking with him, and, and that's how we need to approach it like that. And uh, just wrap it up real quick. I'm going to give you the last one because we are going to finish chapter five. The last victory is just victory over deception. Let me read it, and then we'll close out um, this chapter. He says, "We know that we are of God, and that the whole world lies in the power of the evil one." And we know that the Son of God has come and has given us understanding so that we may know Him who is true and we are in Him who is true in His Son, Jesus Christ. This is the true God and eternal life. Little children, guard yourselves from idols. It's, it's simply true that most of the world, based on the Word of God, most of the world is deceived, lives in a state of deception. They've been deceived by, by the satanic forces, by the demonic forces in the world that have convinced most of the world that they can find a God or they can find uh, uh, access to become their own guy. It really goes back to that original uh, sin in the garden where uh, uh, Satan convinced Eve uh, that, that she could be like God if she basically would disobey God. And that, that deception has been going on ever since, ladies and gentlemen. But John says, he comes back to this, this thing he's been dealing with the whole way tr- through, truth, truth. God has given us his son in, 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 in this truth that we know. That we don't have to be deceived. You don't have to be deceived. If you're sensitive to the Spirit of God in your life, if you're active in the Word of God in your life, then when, when deception comes into your life, when untruth, when a lie comes into your life, whether it's from a person, whether it's from, from a, a political speech, whether it's from a, 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 a television ad saying that if you just had this, then you'll be... Have, that if, if, you're, if you're where God wants you to be, then you'll, you'll be able to recognize the deception in it. and Say, no, that's, that's not God. That's not how God would have this work. We have victory over deception because of what Christ has done. Look at what, I want to give you what the prophet Jeremiah wrote in uh, Jeremiah, I think chapter 9. He said this, They bend their tongue like their bow, lies and not truth prevail in the land, for they proceed from evil to evil and they do not know me, declares the Lord. I, I, I do not, you'd have a hard time convincing me that there's been a time in history where that has been any more true than it is now or what we are rapidly approaching. It's as if the world has been turned upside down and what was once considered wrong by God's standards is now considered right and what was right is now considered wrong. That is the world. That is the deception. And you're going to have to be in that world. As the Apostle said, we're, Paul said, we're in the world but not of the world. Don't be deceived. You have victory over that because of the truth that is Jesus Christ. Amen? 
Victory Over Disobedience and Victory Over Deception, two areas where a proper understanding of who Jesus Christ is puts us on the path to overcoming the enemy. Jesus said that Satan was the father of lies and no truth is in him. As we saw in the passage today, Satan has deceived the world into believing that it doesn't need God. Followers of Jesus know better. We don't have to be deceived because God has given us His truth, and it is that truth that helps to keep us from disobedience to God. None of us are perfect, that's for sure, but God takes holiness seriously, and we should as well. We're glad you joined us for this week's message on Crosswalk. Pastor Clay is the author of the book, I Get It, Discovering How to Really Live in the Promises of God. My prayer is that God would use it to help some people understand a few things about what it really takes to live in the promises of God. God wants you to live a life of peace and purpose and meaning and hope and fulfillment and contentment. He wants you to live a life without fear and without anxiety. Many people at some point in their life feel disconnected with the type of life and faith they read about in the Bible and what their lives look like on a daily basis. What is it that we're missing? What is it that we're not getting. If I'm not really living in the promises of God, why is that? That's what this book explores. I Get It is available online in electronic versions for the Nook and Kindle, as well as paperback from Amazon.com. And ask for it by name at your favorite local bookstore. You can go in bookstores and just say, hey, uh, have you got a book in here uh, entitled I Get It from Clay Stevens? They can order this book out of their catalogs that they get. Get your copy today. Discover the promises of God and the steps you need to take to get it. And join us here each week online for another Crosswalk message. God has invited us to know Him through His Word, the Bible, a perfect record of God's revelation to man and applicable for every area of our lives. And if you're in the Raleigh area, we invite you to be a part of cross-culture worship. We meet at 1030 every Sunday morning at the Leesville Road High School, a mile and a half south of I-540, exit 7. We're a church, but instead of religion, we're about relationships. And instead of rituals, we practice realness. Our desire is to be used by God to show people that a life built on the finished work of Christ on the cross is where they will find what they're searching for. Learn more about us, who we are, what we're about, what we do, and what we believe. Visit us online at crossculturelife.org. I'm not the water, I'm not the bread, but I know the place where your soul is fed. So hungry and thirsty, come and be blessed. I want to lead you to the cross. A new church for people like you. Cross Culture Church, taking the cross to our culture and taking our culture to the cross.